This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. First of all, the team at Burn It All Down would like to say that we are holding space for Black Rage. We hear you, we see you, and we are with you. And during this COVID-19 pandemic that is still ongoing, we are extending our love and solidarity with those who are on the front lines of every sector. Those who can't stay home, those who are working from home, those staying in, caretakers, parents, animal lovers, disruptors, resistors, protesters, folks in every community, providing support systems online and whenever you can. Also, those missing sports, feeling isolated or trapped, we hope the show gives you something to think of, to laugh about, and, well, burn. I'm Shireen Ahmed, freelance writer and sports activist in Toronto, Canada, leading the toxic femininity charge today. On this week's panel, we have the amazing Jessica Luther, weightlifter extraordinaire, my favorite PhD candidate slash croissant maker, and co-author of the forthcoming book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. She's in Austin. Dr. Brenda Elsie, president of the Feminist for Leo Messi Fan Club, undeniable genius, associate professor of history at Hofstra University, New York, and the indomitable and brilliant Lindsay Gibbs, with the most beautiful laugh, mightiest pen, freelance sports reporter and creator of the Power Plays newsletter. Sign up at powerplays.news. She's in D.C. Before we start, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly, as low as $2 and as high as you want, to become an official patron of the podcast. In exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. With the price of a latte a month, you can get access to extra segments of the podcast, a monthly vlog, an opportunity to record on the burn pile, behind-the-scenes videos, only available to those in our Patreon community. So far, we've been able to solidify funding for proper editing, transcripts, our social media guru, Shelby, and our new producer, Kinsey. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we all believe in this podcast. We are so, so grateful for your support and happy that our flame-throwing family is growing. We have such a kick-ass show for you this week. We will be talking about sports media and are they equipped to handle this specific moment in time with regards to Black Lives Matter movement? What is the reporting about? How is it going? Brenda has an interview with Anita Asante, a centre-back for Chelsea, an English international and an Olympian to discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement in global football and the future of the Women's Super League in England. Then we get into the good, the bad, and the ugly of social media statements on Black Lives Matter. But first, 
let's have an important update on our fur babies. How are all the pets doing? Are they social distancing? Are they seeing their friends? What is happening with the fur babies? Jess? Yeah, so Ralph is socially distancing and he has a really hard time whenever he sees someone outside because he wants everyone to pet him all the time. So he's still sort of struggling with that. Um, He's also struggling right now because he has heartworm. This has been like a whole thing. So in about a month, he's going to go get his first heartworm shot. But because he has heartworms, he's not allowed to go running. And he and Aaron were running like up to six miles a day before this. So he's like a little bit bouncing off the walls and doesn't understand. And so this morning when Aaron went to go running, Ralph will go up to the door out to the garage because that's how we leave. And he will just like put his little snout like up against the door and just stand there because Aaron has left him behind. But he's good. He's still perfect. And we love him. And we're just really happy that he's here. Lindsay, how's Mo? Yeah, Mo is cooped up. I actually, I was at the um, protest at DC yesterday, and a lot of people have brought their dogs because, you know, just during the daytime to March. And I felt, I was like, oh, I should have brought Mo. Mo would have loved this. Um, he just needs to get out a little bit more. And also, he's really struggling because the, I haven't, he hasn't been able to get like his, like really good bath at the hair salon and really good, you know, like de-shedding treatment and nails done. And he doesn't really let me do his nails. So he's miserable because his nails are too long, but he'll only let me do like one at a time. And the pet store doesn't have an opening for like another three weeks <laughs> for <laughs> grooming. So that is the most trouble I think he's having. He will feel so much better, uh, especially now that it's 90 degrees every day when he can get like, you know, a little grooming as we all will. But otherwise, he's been very good. He's been very cuddly. And I have super appreciated that because I have needed cuddles. Brenda, how's Leo? Leo's perfect. He's really happy to socially distance. He has no complaints. He listens to the show a lot. (laughs) <laughs> you know, he, he, he's just, he had a cold and I, I like freaked out and called Shireen and I had a cat before, but it hasn't been a long time. I don't know why cold protocols would change. But anyway, <laughs> I was incredibly concerned. I followed him around all day. I think he had had it with me, you know, I was like listening. Is that like a wheeze? I don't know. I'm recording it. <laughs> It was kind of my own reaction was hilarious. It was just a cold. He's absolutely fine and happy. And yeah, I love him. Yeah. Um, I was, uh, I can't remember who it was that talked about potentially doing like a Zoom call for our pets, which I think would be great. I think that's something that we need to think me, about. Tata me, me. I think he would love Tara. Yeah. I think Leo yeah, would love I think to Adam, meet her. She would be unimpressed. She's... I mean, I have a neighbor. Um, she would she, like, I'm not going to lie. She would just not be interested. Um, I Zoom called my best friend and, and one of my best friends in London, Nabila, and she has a cat named Muffin. Muffin's lovely, all black, beautiful green eyes. So we tried and they were both eating their cat grass together. So we thought it would be like fun. We got them oat grass. Mine died, my oat grass, because I just learned this thing that when you have plants, you have to holes at the bottom of the planter. I didn't know that. So, which is apparently oxygen is a thing with, with plants. So I was like, okay, fine. But anyways, Thada did not enjoy that conversation. And I have a cat, a neighbor next door named Minnie, who has come into the house before and who's one and is lovely. And Thada did not try to like attack her. So that's progress. So maybe she'll be into a Zoom call. So we'll see. 
anyways, I'm just happy about the fur babies. And, you know, Amira's not on this week and we miss Scooby who often barks in the background. So we miss you, Scoob. Jessica, can you get us started, please? Yes. So on Friday's episode of ESPN Daily, which is hosted by Mina Kimes, a former guest on this podcast, Kimes was interviewing Bomani Jones. They were talking about athletes and activism and the impact of George Floyd's murder on sports. A lot of the discussion was around New Orleans Saints quarterback Drew Brees, because in an interview with Yahoo Finance earlier in the week, when asked by the reporter if he would support players kneeling on the sidelines in the upcoming season, Brees resorted to the answer he's been giving for four years now, quote, I will never agree with anybody disrespecting the flag of the United States of America or our country. So he just showed off that he wasn't listening and didn't understand. This comment drew outrage far and wide, but specifically from some of his teammates, including Malcolm Jenkins. Breeze then made two public apologies on social media Thursday and reportedly apologized to his teammates, both privately and during an hour-long virtual team meeting, which is how we get to Mina and Bomani on Friday. Mina asked Bomani if he thought all of this would cause NFL owners and the league itself to do any introspection. Bomani responded, quote, They will look inside their house as much as we, the media, make them, because the one thing the NFL has is a sycophantic media that doesn't push them on anything. In a long Twitter thread responding to Breeze's comments, Martellus Bennett, former NFL player, ripped the NFL for its racism, noted the performative bullshit of the linking arms moments in response to players kneeling back in 2016, and said that there are so few black coaches because the NFL doesn't need them in order to operate in the same way it needs black players. And then he tweeted, quote, Sports media folks play a role in the framing of negative narratives around black players, too. A lot of you motherfuckers are racist as as well. We've talked repeatedly on the show about the issue of the lack of diversity within sports media. It's almost 90% cis white men. It's incredibly homogenous. It's like you can't overstate that. And as both Jones and Bennett said, it's bad when it comes to the NFL. But then consider the MLB. I was thinking this week about how only a single MLB player, Bruce Maxwell, took a knee. He no longer plays in the MLB. And this week he was on the A-plus podcast where he said, quote, where were these people when I took a knee? Where was the support when I was pushed out of the MLB? And I think he's talking about the media as much as his fellow athletes. I felt all of this acutely this week as I was watching mainly men, mainly white male sports reporters on my Twitter timeline, tweeting about dumb shit like college football transfer news or even the negotiations to get major sports leads back during the pandemic because we are still in a pandemic. Those banal, unimportant tweets were sandwiched between videos of police brutality, calls to action against racial injustice, and images of thousands and thousands of protesters in every state in the U.S. in the streets protesting. And then I thought, of course, that's what those dudes are doing. This is what sports media has trained them to do, to report about the sport and the game itself divorced from the context and the society around it. Sports reporters and their editors and bosses, the vast majority, we can't say this enough, who are cis white men, like it that way. They are comfortable with it that way. And so I kept thinking, is sports media at all equipped for this moment? And even the moment when we finally get sports back? And I just, I don't think they are. They are often sycophants. They are often racist. And they just don't care enough to push against the people in power. I'm genuinely concerned about what that will mean for what stories get told and how they get told. What are you all thinking about this? Liz? Yeah, I'm concerned too, Jess. Um, I think for me, this was highlighted very clearly 
in the Bill Simmons podcast last week. So I actually grew up, you know, listening to the Bill Simmons podcast. I used to listen to it actually regularly, just kind of out of habit until recently. He's had um, Ryan Rossillo on a lot more frequently. And I, I don't enjoy um, Ryan Rossillo's commentary usually. So, you know, I have not been listening, like I said, for about maybe the past year, but I saw on Twitter that there had been a discussion between Bill Simmons and Ryan Rossillo on the Bill Simmons podcast, which is like the number two sports podcast in the world. I mean, we're talking millions of downloads every every episode. And they talked last, their episode came out last Monday. It was a talk they had on Sunday about the protest. And it was these two white guys who are so used to talking, shooting the shit and thinking that their opinion is the most important one in the world and that their opinion is God and that everyone just wants to hear exactly what they have to say on the matter at hand. They're so used to talking about current events like their sports, um, gaming, uh, talking about things like their winners and losers and, um, you know, breaking it down to sports that their conversation about the protest was downright fucking insulting. I mean, you know, it centered the looting more than it centered, you know, George Floyd. I don't really think it even brought up George Floyd, but it they were not equipped at all for this moment. And they both come out since and apologize and recognize like we should have had experts on. We did not do this properly. Uh, and Bill even said like we misread the moment and that he's, you know, he was like, well, I'm 50. It's hard to change my ways. Yeah. Which is just oh. like fucking ridiculous. And to me, it just, it just showed like, not only is sports media very lacking so much diversity, but it's it's filled with opinionists and m- white men who have been told that everyone is dying to hear exactly what they want to say. They've built these egos up. They've built these brands up. And they're used to doubling down on bad takes. They're used to feeling like the star of the show. And in moments like this, that utterly fails everything. And a really appalling moment in the podcast was when Ryan Rosillo actually praised Bill Simmons for the diverse hires at the ringer, which uh, if anyone has uh, ever paid attention, uh, knows it's just not true. And the ringer union, actually, a lot of ringer employees came out and were like, this is not true. We have a huge diversity problem here. So I think it just goes to show like for, for Ryan Rosillo, like even having like one black voice was like, oh, you are so progressive. And it just, I don't know, it just really disgusted me. And I think it made me very scared. We have seen a lot of ESPN personalities come and eat speaking out, which has been interesting because as we know, when Jimmy Pitaro came on at ESPN, they kind of did a big shift away from talking about anything that wasn't X's and O's on the field. And so it's been good to see a lot of ESPN writers and um, hosts you know, openly engaging. Maria Taylor has been phenomenal. Michael Eves on SportsCenter. Sarah Spain's done a lot of great work on her radio show. You know, Bamani Jones, of course, Mina Kimes. But it, it it is interesting because they've spent the past two years actively encouraging their employees not to do this. And it's like, okay, well, 
now you see, like, are we going to get an apology for how fucked up that was? Are we going to get an apology for how you treated Jamel Hill? Like, what? where are we going from here? So I'm going to be very curious to see. And, you know, what I would like to see is not only newsrooms diversify, but I'd like to see the white people who do have the microphone, not only pass the microphone, passing the microphone is super important, but also doing the work to learn about these issues and being able to actually engage on them on a real level. Study, study racism the way you study the fucking statistics or the NFL plays. Like you're smart. You have the capabilities. Do the work. Crystal Dunn of the U.S. Women's National Team has been like incredibly articulate, astute in sharing specifically what needs to be done. And she pointed her fingers at sports media, which needed to be done. She underlined and she challenged racist language, coded language, especially about helping like commentators. And she specifically said, help me change the narratives and stereotypes of black men and women in sports. Throughout my experience in soccer, I often see black athletes praised on their speed, strength, and tenacity. Even those traits accurately describe that athlete from an early age, we're led to believe that's all we can contribute. So she's literally challenging, and that's an end quote. She literally challenges the pace and power, and those are in air quotes, ideas in soccer reporting, which we saw so much of. And I know this team really was irritated about it. And that was just something that I thought was really helpful and something in this moment that sports media can do better because it does contribute. Language is a huge part of narratives or a huge part to con- like contributing to racist systems and racist narratives and tropes. And it's like it's garbage. But On another thing, I just wanted to pivot quickly to something that I was thinking about that this week, The Athletic laid off, I think, 6% of its staff. So at the same time, I think that, you know, I'm, I feel bad for colleagues that don't have a job, definitely, that are furloughed or laid off. And we saw it earlier, we saw it with with, with Fox, Vox, SB Nation, etc. But at the same time, it's like, is this a rebuilding moment? Is this a moment where... We can do better. Is this because I mean, you do see lots and all over my timeline are white reporters and news writers talking about they're very sad for their colleagues. And I'm like, that struck me the racial disparity between those that were mourning their colleagues' jobs and, and you know, sad for their for the industry. And then I'm like, well, we don't have those jobs to begin with. So, like, you know, I get it. And there is a place to feel bad for your colleagues who don't have work, 100%. But this is also, there needs to be a place to be able to discuss this moving forward. Do we want change or do we want to constantly report on the idea that change needs to be made? Like, I, I, I don't know. I don't have a solution. I'm just pointing that out. Brenda? Yeah, this seems, it's interesting because I'm always trying to think about the relationship between sports media and journalism more broadly. Like, what has happened since this administration, the Trump administration, has gone after journalism in particular, you know, coming from the top down? And Lindsay mentioned Jamel Hill and her firing in 2017, which began when she basically criticized the president for being a white supremacist, which, of course, is is actually true. That's reporting. But in this case, it seems like the entire system 
is so jeopardized, as you're saying, to make it very difficult for people to speak up. And in sports, just like all other parts, you have the question of access, right? You're out there saying something critical, and the people who are reading it are the very people who give you access to interviews and things. And I see this in in football all the time. They're journalists, and I don't need to name them, that will believe and reprint and rewrite whatever FIFA source is anonymous and gives them a line here and there. And these are perfectly intelligent, critical people. And you're like, how is this happening? And essentially, you know, they need access. If, th- if those people are the gatekeepers, then they walk this very fine line. And I just thought the New York Times decision to run the op-ed by Senator Tom Cotton, which was a pro-fascist piece advising that the military is sent anywhere and everywhere by the executive to restore order, quote unquote, was a perfect example and sports media as a kind of subsection of this, of the ways in which this structure works, because he uses his very powerful position to get an op-ed, which is a slap in the face. And there was a really good, I just want to shout out in the thick um, with Maria Hinojosa and Julio Varela, who said, look, we have tried to get a New York Times op-ed and all writers of color have for like years. And mm, this fascist yeah. just throws it out there and it has to do with his power in other realms. So I, I just find it like really disturbing and upsetting to see this attack on journalists more broadly. Jess? Yeah. And one way that we could reimagine is like, what does it look like if you're not doing your job based solely on whether or not you'll have access to the people at the top afterwards? And that's scary as shit. I mean, I admit that. Like, I understand why people are making those choices when it comes to their job. But maybe that is something that sports journalism really needs to grapple with is what does this look like if we are not giving all of our power over so that we can have some access to these people who lie to our faces all the time and are pushing narrative? It's not like the NFL doesn't have NFL.com <laughs> where they're putting their shit out all the time. You know, like they have their own media infrastructures. And I just, it, it, it also makes me think about I mean, this is such a moment, right? Like, this is not on the same level at all, but like pushing people to think about police in our society and what does it mean if we defund them? We need to be thinking big in this moment because we are going to have a chance to to rebuild things. And I just think I am I'm very nervous that on the other side of this, the sports media is not going to do that work. And that will be such a huge missed opportunity. And we are seeing how important sports are to our society and our culture and how we tell these stories right now. And it will be such a fucking bummer if these men mess us up on the other side. Up next, Brenda's interview with Anita Asante. So this week, we are honored to have with us at Burn It All Down, Anita Asante. Chelsea center back, English international, and Olympian. She is also ambassador to Amnesty International UK and ambassador to Show Racism the Red Card. Anita, thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So we obviously at Burn It All Down are very focused by the tragic murder of George Floyd here in the U.S. And we've known Black Lives Matter is, is more extensive than the United States, but it seems that this particular case really has has re- had resonance on a global level and within the sports community. 
How, what's your perception of that from, from where you are? Well, I guess, you know, I, I've wondered to myself, why has this particular murder basically become a movement, a global movement at this period of time? And I've realized that perhaps because we're in the midst of a pandemic where everybody is, you know, at home and maybe haven't got the same kind of distractions that we're used to has allowed people to really zone in on this incident and the global sort of challenges that people are facing on a daily basis. Because as we know, police brutality, systemic racism has always exist has always existed. And, you know, Will Smith, I think he he said, you know, the only difference is it gets filmed now, <laughs> which brings it to the fore that much more, makes it resonate with us um, that much stronger. And I think that's really the main reason that anyone looking at that video or any instances of police brutality, you know, I think we can all share a common sort of empathy, you know, that we know right from wrong. We know that there's an injustice when it comes to these matters. And I think actually, I think it's clearer more than ever that there is just anti-blackness that exists globally and is something that we all like need to work towards um, changing. Mm-hmm. What sorts of activities and conversations has there been in England? Is there a tendency, as there is in some places, to say, well, look how racist is the US, but we're doing all right? Yeah, I think that's a lot of what I've been seeing as well through media publications, on social media, about shifting this narrative to try and maybe make the US look worse than the UK. But the point is, you know, both nations, and I'm sure other nations across Europe as well, have been complicit in the systems that we, you know, are surrounded by, live, you know, living within every day. And it's not really enough to be like, it's their problem, it's not ours. I think that problem is just sort of exacerbated because we've seen the knock-on effect this case has had within the US in terms of the protesting and everything else that's come with that. And, you know, in the UK, protests have also begun. It's it's happening in Paris. There's been a monopoly effect because there are black people all, all over the world in sort of the diaspora as well that experience these daily, you know, microaggressions or these injustices. And how do you see anyone in English football or any of the football clubs that that you've been watching that you think has gotten has gotten it right? Well, I think I mean, I guess one positive thing is to say that lots of um, sporting outlets, institutions, brands, clubs, individual players have also found their voices and are speaking up on the issue. They are lending their support you know, they're encouraging other people to lend their support and also giving out vital information for people that are active in in protesting and trying to create, you know, actual tangible changes. But, you know, the point is we that people don't want tokenism either. Like it's great that we have symbolic messages that are projected online through social media, through television and broadcasting. But the point is we want all of these institutions and outlets brands and sponsors to also show a commitment beyond this point that they are going to sort of include in their strategies within their own businesses 
ways to support and improve the conditions for BAME people. And where do you see, you know, if if you sort of analyze global football insofar as we can, <laughs> where do you see the places that could, that really could produce real change if something was done different or what steps do you think maybe they should take? Well, I, well, I think the really sort of important thing to say is that, you know, it's great that clubs and the institutions that govern them are also, you know, saying that they support the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. But, you know, at the end of all of this, it's important that they don't look hypocritical because we know racism has existed within football for decades and it's still an issue. And we've struggled to see a real commitment from, you know, the macro level bodies such as FIFA, UEFA take real action. So really, if we're going to make tangible changes that people can feel and see, then it has to happen on that level where decision-making happens, where policy-making happens that directly affect players and, and fans and supporters and anyone who really engages with sport. And we need to find a sort of consolidation between what we know to be human rights in line with, with sport, because I think we're past the time where we say sport and politics and sport and human rights don't go together. How would you say, I, I mean, are for listeners that may not know, what is the representation like of people of color in the in the sporting or football institutions? Well, yeah, I think that moves to the point to say that, you know, we really need to find ways to diversify all levels of sport from, I, you know, as a player that's been playing for over 20 years, I've realized in sort of the, the latter stages of my career now, you know, isn't it amazing that I've never really had black coach or other staffers, um, including other ethnic minorities that exist within um, a whole array of roles within football, which could be, you know, physios to referees to whatever. And, and, and that's a problem. And if that's a problem at that level, where predominantly you still only really see sort of ethnic minority and, and black engagement at grassroots sports levels, then you can imagine when it comes to managerial positions, positions that have influence and real power that can be executed, there isn't a diversification of gender, race, or anything else in those spaces. So it's really hard to imagine that they can relate and understand the challenges and the needs of, of people that don't necessarily look like them or, you know, speak like them or whatever, who are directly affected by the decisions they make. Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I mean, getting to the question of intersectionality, you know, June's also Pride Month. June, June, June has also been a site where we've, uh, a month where we've seen a lot of leagues that have decided to cancel the women's competitions and not the men's competitions. I imagine it's hard, you know, it's impossible to sort all of these things out separately because they're all happening together. How do you see that intersection between Black Lives Matter and Pride Month and some of these these women's football issues? Well, I think it, we're in this moment of like opportunity, I guess, as well. And, and we're seeing a lot of different social activism across all levels, clearly related to, to race in this case. Uh, gender and sexuality. And I think even when I 
talk about the LGBTQ plus community, you know, something as symbolic as the rainbow has also been hijacked in the UK, at least for lending support to our essential workers and, and healthcare workers who are obviously doing an amazing job related to uh, COVID, uh, COVID-19. But, you know, there's a risk as well. And I know that there's a lot of people from the LGBT community that feels that by, you know, them utilizing the, the sort of symbolic messaging from the rainbow flag is a way to also erase the struggles and, and the challenges that are still faced within the LGBT plus community and change it into something else which therefore could lead to the erasure of what it means to be part of that community. So that's also one challenge, but on an intersectional level where women have always been sort of left behind in the progress of men in, in all sections of, of society and life in the workspace related to wages and value and things like that. We're in a sort of precarious time as well, because well. In some senses, we've made a lot of progress in trying to sort of bridge some of these gaps or get women closer uh, to those opportunities. There's also a, a real threat to to all the progress that's been made, and that's including obviously women and women's sport, where we've always kind of been secondary secondary to the the priorities of of men's football and the sort of economic gate part of the men's game. So I think now it's it, it's about maintaining I think visibility for women and women in sport and LGBT plus communities so that you know the continued progress many have been striving towards doesn't get lost. I mean obviously you were probably disappointed but also maybe there's a lot of nuance and conflict with canceling the Women's Super League which was done just uh, over a week ago. I, I agree. And I think it, it, it's super complex. And, you know, as a player, of course, from my own sort of selfish perspective, I wanted to get back and play. And, you know, we wanted the league, we wanted a good way to, a good and fair way to end the season. That's based on just competitive performance, of course. But I think many players, including staff, understand that the challenges within the circumstances we're facing within a pandemic. and you know, the state of the, the women's game. And by that, I mean the, the state of the women's game, as we know, the foundations are already quite rocky because of the chronic underinvestment to begin with. So we don't have necessarily the greatest of bases to support all the clubs consistently in the way that would be needed in order to make sure we could return to play as safely as possible. And by that, I mean all the testing and everything else that would need to be done in order to ensure that, you know, we're being um, sort of medically taken care of. Um, but having said that, again, it goes back to the point that women's sport has not ever been prioritized in the way that it should as well. So even regardless of the situation that many clubs are facing at the elite level, if women aren't placed as part of the agenda and, and supporting that, uh, all the, the work that's been done to get us the platform we have now, then of course we run the risk of regressing and nobody really wants that. So 
I think that's the challenge as well, because, you know, we need to make sure the right people um, are also in the discussions, having the discussions with the people at executive levels that are making these decisions. But then, you know, I could also say the challenges are different in the UK. And sometimes it's hard to make comparisons like that of Germany, who have returned to football, who have managed to support the women's Bundesliga as well where their own national pandemic was handled very, very differently to that of the UK as well. And it's so important what you're saying about the structures to keep players safe and how that's different. I remember, I believe was about a month ago, I interviewed the Colombian player Vanessa Cordoba, and she explained that one test was as expensive as a women's player's monthly salary. And so, so what, what do you do? I mean, obviously it shouldn't be like that, but the fact that it is like that means it was very difficult for them to imagine being able to get the foundations and the structures in place so that they didn't feel really worried no, about I, going back. Yeah, yeah. Of, of course. Like I said, the, the, the challenges are so vast in different ways because as women, we have different needs as well. And it's not that easy to look at the scenario black and white because, of course, we know that the you know the women's sport platform needs to be raised and it needs to be better supported and given greater visibility across all platforms, broadcasting, you know, media online, other and otherwise. But for example, if you're a, a female athlete who also has children, and you may have to travel or be in a lockdown situation away from your family for a long stretch of time just to complete a season that could also have you know lots of pressures you know mental health challenges and you know maybe even the fa- or if you have to take your child with you then you have to be tested they have to be tested you know the tests are costly but they also aren't the most comfortable tests <laughs> to have and you can imagine a child having to do those tests so i think uh, you know there's a range of uh, things that needed to really be addressed and I I think there were people on the other side of the coin that would have looked at it and said let's cancel the women's league maybe because it was easier as well and 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 that's not right but that's also to say that it was one less stressor for them to have to deal with in the magnitude of circumstances of the football pyramid where we also know that men's clubs in the lower tiers in championship and even in the Premier League with, with a smaller sort of um, market economy would struggle or maybe not exist. Over the past week, we talked a little bit about player activism. There's also been, besides statements, some players that have expressed their solidarity with Black Lives Matter on the pitch including Marcus Toram, um, Lillian's son, who took a knee in the Bundesliga uh, the past weekend. When you see that, you know, what does that, how do you react to that as a, as a Black player yourself? I mean, when I saw those actions, I, I felt very proud of them and I felt empowered and I think empowers lots of people that they represent. And I think it shows that, you know, before athletes were looked at as just shut up and play. <laughs> That's your job. But they're people and they also have opinions and they also 
see things and have experienced things that they also probably perhaps can relate to. Well, Anita Asante, thank you so much for being with us at Burn It All Down. I hope you'll be back with us soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Linz, can you get us started on the statements? Yeah. So this week, we, we touched a little bit on this last week, but this week I think has been the week of the statement. I'd like to put it in, in capital capital the capital statement. It's been pretty much a requirement for leagues, for teams, for brands, including gushers to <laughs> that's not I'm I'm very serious about the gushers thing to come out with statements claiming that they are about the moment. Some have been good statements that openly address police brutality and systemic racism that reflect internally about things that either the individual or the brand can do to improve to help dismantle systemic racism specifically within their own ranks or their own persons. And others look like they could have been copied and pasted from the pride statements they might have had ready to go. You know, they are very general ones about equality and love (laughs) and peace. And so it's been very interesting. I think on one hand, I wonder what is even the point of these statements? (laughs) Like, do these statements matter? On the other hand, and I think it's right to be skeptical of all these statements because they're just a statement. On the other hand, I've talked to a lot of people, including a lot of Black female athletes who are really looking to organizations, to coaches, to teammates, to see what they are saying in this moment. If a statement is the bare minimum you can do, well, are you even passing that bar? So I think there's a dichotomy here, and I think everyone can feel differently about whether or not these statements are useful or not. But I think it is also interesting to look at what is a good statement and what is a bad statement and who has at least made a good statement in this moment. So I think we're going to go around and kind of share some of the ones that we have um, appreciated, that have felt genuine, that have felt like they rose to the moment, and ones that have not. Yeah, thanks, Linz. I think that one of the things is I just want to preface what I'm saying. I'm not a judger of statements. This isn't like America's got talent. (laughs) And we're like going around. I mean, Brenda would clearly be Simon Cowell in that spot. But like, (laughs) I think that I just that's not what's happening here. I'm saying language is important. And we also see the value in growth. I've learned a lot to give space for growth in that way. That's something that has changed throughout my time on this show and listening to my co-hosts and how smart they are. And, you know, Amira was just like, everyone has a journey and you have to be able to, to do that. And I say that a lot because it's important to reiterate, um, not to only say how smart we are on the show, but just to sort of say that there's, you know, things can happen. And in this moment, it is important because we are seeing a time where this has never happened before. So I tweeted this out earlier this week and I stand by this tweet. I did not have white hockey dudes on my who's woke bingo card and white hockey men have wowed the fuck out of me because Braden Holtby of the Washington Capitals. I just, Mr. Holtby, where have you been? Because his statement was 
unbelievable. And he talked about the Potomac River. He talked about the name of the bridge, Woodrow Wilson. And he said it is, and I'm quoting directly from his tweet and Instagram post. And he also said, these are, many of the statements were like typed up a notepad on the phone and then because of the character limitation, but he actually hashtagged Black Lives Matter. But he also said that he talked about the bridge, a monstrous bridge named after racist, racist president, it was just, it was stellar. Like he weaved history into it. Like we were forever telling people that historical context is everything. Braden Holpe was either listening to burn it all down or he's just got some sports historian friends because this man just nailed the statement. And I think it was just really, really important what he did. So he said, what do I do? And he's like, I fall into white privilege. He admitted his privilege. And he's just like, it was just very well done. And he says, America will never be great until all Black Lives Matter. I think it's reflection. Inflection is very important. Hillary Knott put out something and she also followed it up with a thread about specifically where to donate, like bailout funds. She put out like incredible array of, of places where one could donate to support community organizations. I was very, it was, it was very, very good in my opinion. And it sounded very, very smart. And so I appreciated that. And there's also an owning of privilege, which is very, very important. And I need to see that. I need to know that you get that to my bad. The bad for me, bad statements were very easy. And in in Hockey and Society, which is co-edited by a friend of the show and one of my close friends, Dr. Courtney Cito, she lit, she's a professor and she literally took all the statements and she graded them as a professor would grade. And the one that she came up with, it was it's a fantastic, fantastic hockey and society thing. And I think she meant it kind of as a joke, but it's brilliant. And it has over 5,000 hits and we'll add it to the show notes. And it was easy for me to find this because the worst one, the hard passes for me were Edmonton Oilers, but worse were the St. Louis Blues. Because the St. Louis Blues were a definite, definite, terrible whole thing of saying there was nothing Oh, it was just, it was an F because the St. Louis Blues actually mentioned they stand to work in a better society with those who honorably wear the uniform as they protect and serve all of us. Like, it was unbelievable. It's like they're completely tone deaf and we're refusing to understand that, you know, defunding police and police brutality are a huge part of this, a huge part of why people are protesting and what communities are asking for. Like, they just, they nailed it in being terrible. Brenda, give us yours. I I feel like it's not quite my right to give out these cookies, but when when you brought up statements, for me it comes like white people come to mind or corporate statements because I just think when African Americans or other people of color are putting something out there that it's more an expression or a explanation or analysis and white people it feels more like statements. So the one I picked was a legendary San Antonio coach and friend of the show, Greg Popovich. And I guess it only works because he's done things like supported the immigrant community in San Antonio and defended African-American rights to protest throughout his career, the promotion of women. You know, it works because there's already sincerity built in, I, I guess, for me. And in it, I guess I liked that he focused on the what what white people need to do to collect other white people and 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 focus on that and stop making the work of all of this born on the shoulders of African Americans. 
So he discusses the nonchalant attitude of the white officer. And when he does that, he starts to cry. And he says, this is just a little quote, the only reason this nation has made the progress that it has is because of the persistence, patience, and perseverance of Black people. So I I felt that was really genuine. I still don't know that even he, in in all of his wonderfulness, is going to convince anyone who's not already, but... I, I think it's important probably for the players whose whose lives he touched and who look up or respect him or have relationships with him, I would imagine. And I hope some people would would listen to it. The the one that is um completely and utter bullshit that we should laugh and deride and criticize is US Soccer Federation. Mm-hmm. And the the statement goes like this one nation, one team, united against racism. That's that's the statement. That's so that's their that's their kind of statement. And for people who don't remember, the reason that this is so disgusting is that U.S. Soccer Federation had banned kneeling, the only official ban in bylaws that occurred after a September 2016 game against the U.S. Women's National Team versus Thailand, where Megan Rapino took a knee. And Rapino at the time said she would, quote, I will respect the new bylaw the leadership at USSF has put forward that said, I believe we should always value the use of our voice and platform to fight for equality of every kind, end of quote. So U.S. Soccer Federation, I'll believe your shitty ass statement when you actually rescind that bylaw. Man, Jess. Yeah, so... I mean, I'm with Lindsay on this. Like, it does feel like these statements are a bare minimum and that you should be able to do this bit. I think it's important to say, to like educate yourself enough to have a good statement in this moment to show that you see Black people and their experiences um, and recognize that right now. But I also feel like all this shit's hollow until there's any kind of action to back it up. And I think it'll take a while to see if any of this is, if there's any kind of follow through. So like, I really, I mean, we could say so many things about the day of black squares on social media, but anyone who just posted one of those and like moved on, right? Like Roger Federer has his black square and that's basically it. The fucking Washington NFL team whose name is a racist slur posted a black square, right? So until like that team changes their name, then I'm not gonna believe a damn thing that they have to say um my good example it's another white guy it's a white quarterback so low bar here but i feel like he cleared it and especially in the week of <laughs> drew breeze breeze i mean that's similar so this is matt ryan from the atlanta falcons they both are white quarterbacks in very black southern cities right and so i talked about breeze in the first segment I don't even know what else to say about him, but Matt Ryan a week ago posted on Instagram, quote, my heart goes out to all those who love George Floyd and all those who have been impacted by similar tragedies. I know that I cannot fully understand the depth and complexity of these issues because of the color of my skin, which is a sad testament to all of the work we have left to do. I know I'm only one man, but I also know I'm committed to doing what I can. So he said that a week ago, last weekend. And then on Friday, he followed it up and he wrote a much longer statement. Um, And in part, he said, for far too long, I've read 
I've reacted to social injustice with empathy and silent support, but failed to follow through with active support. I feel the time has come to respond for all of us to respond. I see my city hurting. And so he decided to kick off a fundraiser. He donated $500,000 of his own money and asked other people to donate as well. And he said, quote, over the next few weeks, months, I'll be really listening to the needs of the community and working with black business leaders, sports figures, activists, and local grassroots organizations to get guidance on how these donations can be most impactful. So again, low bar here, but he spoke out a week ago. He acknowledged the limits of his experience and his knowledge. He made a commitment and then he came back later in the week with the beginning of a plan that involved a lot of his own money. He didn't address police brutality directly, so he could have done a little bit better there. But still, I feel like, you know, again, we'll see what happens with that money and what Matt Ryan continues to do from this point forward. But it just felt like a good start. Speaking of action, I think I want to, when we're talking about who's doing this right, I do realize that I am biased here, although I'd like to think I'm hardest on the ones I love. So maybe my bias isn't close, isn't that close, but the Carolina Panthers not only released, um, you know, a strong statement, but their owner and coach has come out and said they'll support players protesting in any way they need to, which I know, I know. But what really impressed me was, you know, they released a statement a week ago saying that they were committed to doing their part in helping in, you know, systemic racism and and helping the black community. And this week they ended their relationship. This just happened on this Saturday. Um, so a week after their statement with CPI security, which I think if you're not from the Carolinas, you might not know what a big partner of the Carolina Panthers CPI security is and how like it is like ingrained in like it's almost synonymous with the Carolina Panthers. But the um, CPI founder had released an email that included racist comments by the CPI's founder, CEO Ken Gill. And so the Panthers pretty immediately cut ties with the group and they're going to be looking for whole new security personnel to be working with. And of course, you know, the conversation about how much security is really needed at these games is a different, um, (laughs) different uh, conversation, but I thought it was impressive. It right away showed me you're making a big business decision. One that might hurt you. One that's ending a long-term partnership you've had because they are not rising to the moment right now. And that's a good sign. Similarly, Minnesota university announced they're not hiring any members of the Minneapolis police department to work their games or events anymore. So that's another statement followed up by an action. We've also seen, I just have to give a shout out to Naomi Osaka and Coco Goff, who have been leading the tennis community and speaking out in ways I really never thought that we would see tennis players speaking out. And I mean, Coco Goff has been at protests talking. So I think that's been really um, powerful and they're carrying they're carrying the weight right now and it's time for everybody else to step up and take some of the burden off of their shoulders as far as statements uh, the the Washington mystics and Washington Wizards released a very thoughtful and deeply it almost felt like reported statement you know citing the names of the victims of police brutality calling them racist murders calling them what they were and going on to talk about ways they're going to work to help the washington dc community and that's a type of specificity i would like to see on the bad side i'd like to call it two women's sports leagues who I think really um, failed. The first is the National Women's Soccer League, who released a statement on June 1st that said, 
The NWSL, our athletes, owners, and officials stand in solidarity with those demanding justice and equality. Our country simply has to do better, and our league will do everything in our power to help advance the change this moment requires. That could be about anything. <laughs> like, that could be about <laughs> literally anything. It doesn't even say the word racism in it. And you know, since then, the NWSL has been lifting up voices of its athletes on its Twitter account. But I would like to see the NWSL engage with this issue in a much more direct way. Um, and the WNBA has really disappointed me that I wrote about this for power plays, but the WNBA has for basically 10 days only released a statement that was a logo that said bigger than ball. And that was it. And the WNBA has a history of failing its players at this time. If you go back to 2016, they did not support its players' protest for police brutality and protest against police brutality until there had been a lot of blowback to their decisions to find the players. And, you know, that trust has not been fully rebuilt. The players are paying attention to what the league does. And all we've seen the league do so far is, you know, release that logo. Um, Kathy Engelbert, after the Chicago Sun-Times contacted her and was writing about it, uh, Kathy Engelbert, the commissioner, released a very vague statement that, you know, did not specifically mention police brutality. And it feels like they're scared of losing sponsors. It feels like they're holding their breath and trying to just get to the summer, get, you know, the summer tournament done in any way they can. And it's disappointing for a league that is 80% black women and has really gotten so much press for the social activism that its players have done and has worked to kind of brand itself as a progressive league. So that's been to me very, very, very disappointing. And I'm going to be paying attention to what happens next. On to our favorite segment, the burn pile. Lindsay, can you start us up in flames, please? I can. I'm going to start with a 20-year-old burn, <laughs> but it came to my attention <laughs> this week, and it just made me very angry. So this week, uh, Darren Ravel, a regular member <laughs> of this segment, he kind of lives here. <laughs> he tweeted out that it was the 20th anniversary of this Sports Illustrated Anna Kornikova cover. And he, you know, was talking about how she was it was she was the most searched athlete at the time and a big deal until then she, you know, her career completely fizzled out. Well, I was looking at this cover that he tweeted out and it didn't look much like a Sports Illustrated cover. Um, it looked like a a men's magazine cover. And in it, uh, Anna Kornikova is like laying down with off the shoulder kind of wrap on, staring seductively into the camera. And I started to do some math and I realized she's 18 in this photo. She's 18 years old. 18 years old. I went back and looked at the article, the 11 page article that accompanied this um, cover, which was a big deal to get a cover. And it is one of the grossest things I've ever, ever, ever read, which is just really, really saying something. So it's, uh, it's got this photo on the top and it's Advantage Kornikova. And then inside... The headline within the magazine, which was written by Frank DeFord, a legendary writer, is she won't win the French Open, but who cares? Anna Kornikova is living proof that even in this supposed age of enlightenment, a hot body can count as much as a good backhand. 
she was 18. <laughs> I, I just can't get over this. 18 years old. The article goes on to call her the Jezebel of sweat. It fawns over her looks. One caption is, in like that, both woman and child, she can also by turns be cagey or guileless, wise or foolish, cocky or dependent, tender or tough, coquettish or direct, beautiful or beautiful. <laughs> this is an old man writing about an 18-year-old athlete. And, you know, it, it has this, this caption. She says, oh, she protests proper, properly. I have things about me that aren't perfect. Things in your looks, I ask? Yes. And that's what I think about those things. But I'm a tennis player. There are thousands of beautiful women. But how many have the ability to play tennis? If I would be ranked 500, no one would look at me. At this time, Kornikova was around number 10 in the world. She had beaten some uh, tons of former number ones in the game. She was a good tennis player. And all of these men had already written off her off as, you know, a hot model to gawk over and nothing else. There's an entire two pages of this 11 page article devoted to this 18 year old's love life. It just it's a reminder. And if people are tweeting out this article uncritically at this point, you've got a long way to go. So let's just let's there's enough flames to reach back 20 years and burn this and burn anyone who is not critical of this uh, type of coverage today. Burn. 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 Brian? Yeah, I'd like to thank Jackie at Colorless Blue on Twitter for pointing this out to me. I am burning ad vincula nobre, metaphorically, of course, the president of Top Flight Soccer Club in Brazil, Fortaleza. He tweeted out a photograph of two men kissing and says, this is the left. If you want to be gay, do it at home. This is a violent attack on decency. The Ethics Commission of Fortaleza is investigating some kind of sanction, or the Disciplinary Commission, I'm sorry. It's a little complicated by the fact that he's president, particularly of the Ethics Commission of this club. <laughs> so, Because, of course... This is how men run sports. For those who don't know, the Brazilian president, Jair Bolsonaro, has mobilized a persistent and violent campaign against Afro-descendant Brazilians, the environment, women's rights, the poor, and yes, they so often go together, the LGBTQ community. He said he would rather his son was dead than gay. This is taking place in a particular environment one in which, you know, Black Lives Matter is incredibly important in Brazil, pointing out the way in which communities of color are dying at really fast rates. Favelas are traditionally places where the police murder and abuse with impunity and target Mariela Franco, the city council woman who um, was gay herself and a black woman, right? That's a, that's a politician that actually you can't even get justice for them. So I want to burn the parts of sports that continue to support this disgusting, bigoted, and violent government in Brazil. Burn. 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 I'm going to go next, and I'm just going to preface this by saying I did not think we would be in a place where – men's hockey players are doing better than gay 
figure skaters who are also men. I just didn't think we'd be here. So I'm just going to say, just because like has been mentioned, the bar is very low, but people show their own biases very clearly. And in this particular case, I'm going to talk about Johnny Weir, who we have fangirled on this show. We have previously. So this Olympic figure skater, and and, and I'm quoting an article in US Today by Christine Brennan, and she followed the story and just said that he deleted a tweet, and he said, it's it's been deleted since then, I understand that I'll never understand. I understand that you'll never understand. Make peace, love your people. I shouldn't have to go to bed with a loaded gun nearby. Hashtag I can't breathe. Hashtag stop looting. Okay, first of all, what the fuck? Secondly, what the fuck? I just don't understand any of that. And I have so many questions. First of all, I hope you're okay. Why do you have a loaded gun? Secondly, don't frame looting as the problem. Don't do that because that's not true. It's terrible. It's like the worst possible take. And just, it was very frustrating. So he ended up deleting that. And as Christine Brennan reported, was just like, I didn't, I woke up in the middle of the night and realized what I said. And I I just, you know, this, and again, with a very, very basic non-apology, I just, you know, it's, it's important. I know that we've talked about in the show in the previous segment about doing work and journeys. This is not a journey. This was like a terrible, terrible, terrible event of of like Twitter, like interaction. It's very possible. And we've said it before, just shut the fuck up. I think that's also okay to do. Like don't ramble and don't conflate issues and don't use hashtag I can't breathe in the same sentence as the hashtag stop looting. Cause that means that you don't understand anything. And if you really think this is about windows and storefronts being broken, then you need to really sit down and unlearn, unlearn before you talk, please. I'm very, very, very disappointed in Johnny Ware. And I would like to metaphorically put all of that into the burn pile. Burn. 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 Jess? Yes. So I am returning to the NCAA because they're back on their bullshit. So three former NCAA track and field athletes filed a lawsuit against the NCAA in March, in which they say they were sexually abused and harassed by their coach, John Rimbaud, one of the world's top high jump coaches. The women say the NCAA enabled his abuse because the association has failed to establish rules addressing sexual misconduct and so has no punishments or deterrence to sexual abuse and harassment. This week, in a new filing in the case, the NCAA worried about a class action lawsuit because there are... (laughs) are so many, said they do not owe student-athletes a legal duty to protect them. They've asked the judge to dismiss the case. In the filing, the NCAA wrote, quote, This case is not about whether the NCAA opposes sexual abuse and works to support its members, member institutions in eradicating it. It does. But they go on, quote, This case is about what the NCAA's legal duty is to take action with respect to sexual abuse on campuses nationwide, and more specifically, what the NCAA's legal responsibility is for the alleged sexual abuse all outside California by one track coach 20 years ago. The NCAA respectfully submits the complaint is flawed as a matter of law and that all claims against the NCAA and its board be dismissed and or stricken. Perhaps most wildly, the NCAA argues, quote, Rimbaud was not the NCAA's agent, and even if he was, the alleged abuse was outside the scope of his employment. 
outside the scope of his employment. What the fuck? That's just everything about this is so insulting to these athletes. The thing is, the NCAA might not have a legal obligation here. They've carefully crafted their hierarchy, so they reap all the rewards and suffer none of the consequences. And that just fucking sucks. The NCAA has long ignored gender harassment and violence. Any changes they've been that they've made are, have been recent and only because survivors have forced them into a corner. And still, they shirk their responsibility at every turn. They aren't even talking about athletes harming other athletes here. We are talking about a predatory, serially abusive coach hurting his athletes. And the NCAA has the gall to say such behavior happened outside of his employment. One of the women suing is Olympic high jumper Aaron Aldrich. She told Scott Reed at the Orange County Register, quote, The mission statement of the NCAA is our purpose is to govern competition in a fair, safe, equitable, and sportsmanlike manner and integrate and include intercollegiate athletes into higher education so the educational experience of the student-athlete is paramount. But the truth is that sexual assault ruins competition and the athlete's educational experience. If you don't address assault more intentionally, then you've failed your mission statement. Right on, Aaron. Burn. 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 Now, after all that burning, it is time to amplify and lift up some amazing folks. First of all, honorable mentions go to Mexican Women's Baseball League that has secured its bid to host the Women's Baseball World Cup, comprised of top 12 national teams from the 12th to the 21st of November in Tijuana. I would like to say a hearty congratulations to Julie Chu and Caroline Ouyette. They had their second baby girl, Tessa, a few weeks ago. And this American and Canadian women's hockey super couple also have an older daughter, Liv. We wish them a lot of happiness and health. Would like to also offer congratulations to Black Girl Surf and founder Rhonda Harper for organizing over 100 solidarity in surfing events all over the world to participate actively in Black Lives Matter protests, which we've seen can be on land and at sea. Also, Ohio's Ballet Met ballerina Rachel Perini has created an Instagram account to lift up Black ballerinas. The hashtag is at Chocolate and Tool, and was started with the intention to, quote, give young ballerinas of color an idea as to what it is to navigate the ballet world as a minority, as well as provide an opportunity for anyone interested in seeing things from a different perspective. Also, we'd be remiss to not shut out Coco Goff for being 16 and being out there publicly and speaking at Black Lives Matter rallies. Can I get a drum roll? And our Badass Woman of the Week has been here before, but we would like to offer hearty congratulations to the Brazilian mixed martial arts fighter and legend Amanda Noon for defending her featherweight title last night and beat Canada's Felicity Spencer. Also in a wonderful display of sportsmanship, Noon placed both belts on Spencer and they hugged. And to make it more amazing... Nunes' daughter was there to witness all of her mother's glory. So, that's so good. It's such a good, I just, I love that. It's so good. Speaking of good, what is good? Let's start. Lindsay, tell me what's good. Yes, I will say what's good is... It's been a week where I've appreciated my burn it all down um, family, 
more than ever. I just, I don't know. You just, just all been in my heart. And I know I'm, I'm not usually the cheesy one, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and I am super uncomfortable right now. <laughs> But yeah, I, I could say it every week, but I don't because it would get repetitive. But I want to say this week, just really thankful for the four of you uh, and Kenzie and Shelby. And, you know, I've been at a few of the protests in D.C. And uh, I think I said this last week, but the protesters are what's good for me. Brian. What is good? Well, first of all, it is the last week of virtual schooling. If if anybody has had to put their six-year-old in front of a Zoom meeting and their laptop with a pen and paper to take notes, (laughs) you will know how sad that actually feels. I mean, credit to the teacher, but my goodness, it's like having a six-year-old with five different Zoom meetings a week. And six platforms to upload their um, double-digit edition dittos is something that I can't with anymore. (laughs) Anymore. The poor thing is like, you know, do I have to go to my Zoom meeting? Oh, God, it breaks your heart. Like, she's like, (laughs) I just want to go blow bubbles outside. (laughs) You're like, no, do your double-digit subtraction. So I am thrilled. It's over. I'm so relieved for all of us, (laughs) the teachers included. And also what's good is Red Hook, New York, this very small town where I live, has had wonderful and constant demonstrations with a lot of social distancing and masking, we have that, you know, privilege of having space right now and so able to be out there um, almost every day. That's awesome. I am grateful for chicken and waffles that I had for dinner last night. And I, I think I messaged everybody a photo of them because they were delicious. And I, you don't understand, it's really important, particularly where I live, to have your comfort food. And I didn't know this place. It's not terribly far from me. And I found it in the city in which I live. And I actually texted Morgan Campbell, my friend in the morning yesterday. And it's actually Amira's fault because she was traveling and had posted a photo of food that she was eating. And I was like, I want that. So yeah. So I texted Morgan and I'm like, I have an urgent situation. And of course he's like a very attentive friend. He's like, are you okay? I'm like, I need chicken and waffles. And he was just like, okay. And I love that he didn't shame me. He just thought it was a perfectly natural thing that I would say. Because of course I would have that emergency. So I found it. It was delicious. Shout out for Brost Inn in, in Mississauga at here, Ontario and Dundas. It was amazing. It was so good. So I met my friend Max. We social distance picnic and it was lovely. I also want to shout out Burn It All Down team. It's been a really, it's been a, it's been a time. And I just want to say that I appreciate them very much. Also, I get my kids back today and I'm very excited. And I've been practicing table tennis while they're gone because I'm having a difficulty with like returning serves. So I feel like one week without them is good because I can hone my skills and then shame them considerably when they get back today. 
I just wanted to offer a shout out to something really important. I hadn't attended any protests this weekend, and I want to give a very specific shout out to the activists in Toronto, including Black Lives Matter and adjacent organizations that are calling out the protests that look really suspicious. That's important for me, and I think grassroots community and organizing is so key. So I didn't, and I advised my kids not to go, and we did not attend because it was very suspicious the way that businesses were boarding up and there was some conversation and the priority in all this is that people stay safe. In addition to actionable events and participation, it's the safety of community folks. And I really appreciated that. And I felt heartened by it. There's ways for us to do other things like spend your money you would have spent on food or parking or whatever and donate it to bailout funds or black businesses. And I just, I wanted to say that I'm holding so much gratitude to the people that are sharing that very, very important information. So that's what's good for me. Jess. Yeah. So I want to mention the protesters, especially here in Austin, the APD has responded very violently to protesters. There's been like, they sadly, they shot a 16 year old in the head with a beanbag and he's in the hospital. There's another kid who, I mean, he's 20, but I think he was like in critical condition. They, they shot a pregnant woman in the stomach with, you know, quote unquote, non-lethal stuff. And it's been, you know, Austin is a weird space. It's segregated. It has this liberal reputation, but it has all these really fucked up dynamics around race. And I just really, I want to, I've been inspired by the protesters. And I specifically want to mention there was a city council meeting this week. Uh, There's been calls to fire the police chief. It's all very complicated. Um, My friend Dan was trying to explain it (laughs) to me, like who can actually fire this person. And I don't, I don't understand. The city council can't actually do it. Uh, They held a meeting and all these people called in. And I just want to say I was able to listen to like an hour and a half of it. And I was just very proud of all these people calling up and saying to the police chief that he should be fired to his face. Um, He tried not to have his face on the Zoom meeting. And Natasha Harper uh, Madison, who's I think the only black woman on the city council, wouldn't let that stand. She made him turn his video camera on so that everyone could see his fucking face. And shout out to Greg Kazar, another city council media member who was the first one in the city council to say to Manley's face that he should resign, that he should just do the right thing here. Uh, so all of that I felt was like good for um, this week. I want to mention, I will also mention Amira. She convinced me to sign up for Peloton. I don't have a bike. Yeah. I don't have a treadmill. <laughs> but you can do for the first, first month that's free. And then it's like $13 after that. But they have a ton of classes that have nothing to do with a bike or a treadmill. And so I love the stretching. The stretching is phenomenal. I did like 13 of those or something this week. And then they have yoga classes. And so I have done a ton of that this week. That's been really good for my mental health. And the other thing, I feel like I mentioned this before, but if you're looking for a cookie and you like chocolate, Smitten Kitchen's World Peace Cookies are phenomenal and everyone should be eating them all the time. They're easy to make. I trust that you can do it. And they are just buttery chocolate. They're amazing. That's all for this week and burn it all down. Although we are done for now, you can always burn all day and all night with our fabulous story of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, and bags. And what better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports and sports media, but by getting someone you love a pillow with our logo on it. We have a Teespring store. Uh, so it's teespring.com slash store slash burn it all down. And burn it all down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn.
We appreciate your views and feedback, so please subscribe and rate and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Or you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. My apologies for those that have emailed. I, there's a lot of emails and I'm sorting through them very diligently and slowly. So again, apologies if you haven't received a reply, you will soon. Also check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com where you will find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. We would appreciate you subscribing, sharing, and rating our show, what helps us do the work we love to do, and keep burning what needs to be burned. We wish you safety and health and whatever joys you can muster during this chaotic and unprecedented time. And as Brenda always says, burn on and not out. Burn on.